How do you prepare for something that you know is coming? An exam that's looming ahead of you on Friday. A deadline that is coming at you on Wednesday. That uh, conversation that um, is probably going to take place on Thursday. The one that is maybe exciting, maybe something you dread. I have discovered for myself that how I prepare for these things depends on how important they are to me. So, preparing for an exam, it all depended. Uh, you know, if I really felt like this was important, then what do you do? You, you spend time studying, preparing. And I could always tell when I was engaged with the class because usually I did much better preparing for whatever was coming. And I think that's true of our lives, that if we're really engaged, if it's really something important to us, then what ends up happening is the closer we get, the more focused we become about the preparation so that when the moment arrives, we're ready. And I see that in Jesus. This this event that we read about today takes place on the Thursday night before that same night when he's arrested. And he knows time is drawing close. And he's preparing. And what does he do? What does his preparation involve? It's the Passover. This whole chapter is, is, is is enmeshed in the Passover. In verse 2, Jesus says to his disciples, the Passover begins in two days. In verse 5, the, the uh, religious leaders say, we want to arrest Jesus, but not while the Passover is going on. In verse 17, it talk, they ask him, where do you want us to prepare the Passover meal for you? And one of the other gospel writers says that Jesus says to his disciples, I am eager to eat this Passover with you. It is all about the Passover. And that Passover takes us back to Exodus. What we read in chapter 13 is sort of the, the, the explanation of how they're to do it. But before that, this is all about the Israelites being enslaved in Egypt and God choosing Moses to be his agent to rescue them, to bring them out of Egyptian slavery. And that last night, after all of the other plagues, God says that what you need to do is you need to kill a lamb and spread its blood over the doorposts. And the angel will pass over those homes. But that is actually rooted in God's command that the firstborn of animal and and human beings is his. Every firstborn is his. And the reason God chooses the firstborn, I think, is because the firstborn describe our our lives. They describe our future. The firstborn are 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 valued in that culture so highly. And you're, in essence, giving to God the most valuable thing in the family. Not not because that's all God wants, but as a symbol of God that we give all of the family and all that we have to God. And the firstborn serves as the symbol of that. And on that night, but God says, you sacrifice your firstborn animals, but you never sacrifice your children. Instead, you take a lamb without defect, and that lamb is sacrificed in the place 
of the firstborn. Some translations will talk about that lamb is, is bought for the firstborn. In the others, the lamb redeems the firstborn. And in essence, that lamb becomes the redeemer for the firstborn. As a symbol of giving that child to God. Which is a symbol of giving all that we have to God. What intrigues me is that when you come to the New Testament and the Apostle Paul begins to write about Jesus. In his letter to the Colossians, he says, speaking of Jesus, he is the he is the the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. There have been debates through the centuries about what that means. Does that mean that that Jesus is not actually eternal? That he is born just like every other person is born. He's just a glorified human. There have been many theological discussions about that. And there are actually groups of people who have based their whole gathering and all that they believe on that truth. Or on that falsehood, that misunderstanding, I think, of that Jesus is not eternal. Tom Holland says that, that this is, Paul is, is not talking about origins. He's talking about identity. That Jesus is the firstborn, and it relates to the Passover. It relates to that firstborn child being given to God as the symbol of God owning everything. And when Paul says Jesus is the firstborn over all creation, he is in essence saying Jesus is the one who comes to represent, to be the symbol that God has all of it. But the difference is, while every other child... Every other firstborn is redeemed by a lamb. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5 that Jesus is not only the firstborn, he's also the Passover lamb. He's the redeemer. There is not a lamb to redeem Jesus. Jesus is the lamb who redeems all of creation. He had the right as the firstborn to be redeemed. But he comes not to be redeemed, but to be the redeemer. That song we just sang, there is a redeemer. It's Jesus. It's the cross. At the heart of the cross is that Jesus comes to be the redeemer. He comes to be the one as, as that... John describes when he sees him on the banks of the Jordan River, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. When John in Revelation begins to weep because there is no one who can open the seals, the angel says to him, oh, there's one who can open the seals, the Lion of Judah. And John says, I turned, and he's expecting to see a lion. And what does he see? He sees a lamb who's been slain. The Lamb of God, the Redeemer who takes away the sins of the world. And Jesus himself says here in Matthew 26, verse 24, he says, the Son of Man must die, as the Scriptures declared long ago. He comes for this purpose, to be the Redeemer. And then he takes bread, and he takes wine, And he breaks the bread and he lifts the cup and he gives it to them. And he says, now, this is the symbol of what I'm about to do for you. 
This is the symbol, my broken body, my shed blood as the Redeemer. And I'm not doing this for me. I'm doing this for you. I'm doing this because of your sins. I'm doing this because of your need. I'm doing this because I love you. And every time we come to this table, he says, you do this in remembrance of me. What I've done, who I am. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The cross. It is interesting to me that Jesus does not begin the conversation around the table by talking about who he is. But he begins the conversation by talking about what they're about to do. He begins the conversation talking about betrayal. As they're around the table, he says to them, it feels like, at least in Matthew's gospel, it kind of comes out of nowhere. Oh, by the way, one of you is going to betray me. They look at each other. I think the disciples are stunned. Really? We're going to betray you? Is it me? Am I going to betray you? I don't mean to betray you. I didn't intend to betray you. Did, did I do that? Am I going to do that? You're, you know those moments when, when you're in a group and somebody says something and you feels like, feel like they're saying it to you, but you don't really think it applies to you, but then you're not sure if it applies to you or not? And, and you're sort of back and forth in your mind of, is that me? Are you talking about me? Is that really? But I didn't think that was me. And, and we're so shocked by what's said that it sort of messes with our thinking. And I think that's what's going on with the disciples. The 11 of them aren't, they aren't planning to betray Jesus, but, but they're so surprised that Jesus would say that, they're not sure how to respond. And then Judas speaks. And Judas says, is it me? I find that question intriguing because, of course it's Judas. He already knows that. He's jingling the coins in his pocket while they talk. He's running them around in his fingers. 30 pieces of silver. Of course it's Judas. Jesus seems to know that. So what's the point of the question? I think the point of the question is to give Judas one last opportunity to change his mind. When Jesus says... Woe to the one who betrays me. It's better, better for him than, I, than he, if we were not born. It's one last warning. Judas, you don't have to do this. Judas, this doesn't have to be your identity. You don't need to follow through with this. You can almost sense Jesus saying, look, give me the coins. I'll take them back. We'll take them back together. You don't have to do this. I, I don't want you to do this. I don't want to see your life destroyed. It's not too late. I don't know if you've ever seen the, the movie Niagara. It's, I think it was made in 1953, so it's black and white. And the whole movie takes place in Niagara Falls. And it, it's, it's kind of a suspenseful movie. I won't give, a, give away to you, but it, I found it kind of an intriguing movie, particularly since it's so close to us. But there is a scene near the end of the movie where a couple of people are in a boat, and they're on the Niagara River. And, and as they move down the Niagara River, up the Niagara River, there are, there are buoys in the water warning about how much further they have 
to be careful about. Half mile, quarter mile, eighth of a mile, tenth of a mile. And then they come to this, this large buoy with a huge sign on it and the big words, warning. And it says, this is your last chance. Because you're only a few hundred feet from the falls. And if you, if you go past this buoy, you can't turn back. The currents are too strong. You will not be able to, to turn back. And it will sweep you into the falls. So stop now. And I sort of have a sense that that's what Jesus is saying to Judas. You've got one last chance. Stop now. You don't have to do this. I don't want you to do this. You don't need to do this. And Judas doesn't seem to respond to Jesus at all, but just to sit there. And that's what's so amazing about what happens next. That Jesus breaks the bread and he lifts the cup and he gives it to them and he says, drink this, all of you. I think if it were me, I would have said, drink this, 11 of you. We have no indication that Judas has left. And Jesus says, drink this, all of you. My blood is shed for all of you. And we are reminded once again that the cross and the gospel... And Jesus, the Lamb, is full of grace for people who don't deserve it. And here's the honest truth. The other 11 disciples don't deserve it either. And here's the truth as well. You and I don't deserve it either. There's something sometimes in the back of our minds as we go through our journey with Christ that We are tempted to think, I've arrived. I've figured enough things out. I'm moral enough. I'm ethical enough. I've followed the rules enough. I've I've progressed enough that now I, I feel like I'm worthy. But the honest truth is, we are never worthy. We're just offered grace. Do we progress on the journey? Yes. Do we we get closer to Jesus? Hopefully, yes. Do Do we need to stay where we are? No. The whole point of the gospel is to bring us closer to Jesus, make us more like Jesus. But what I've discovered is all the people I know who I would say are holy, people who have experienced what we sometimes call the sanctified life or you know, whatever term you want to use, people who are spiritually mature. What I find as I interact with them is that they are not people who, who have come to the place of saying, I don't really need Jesus that much. These are the people who realize in the very depths of their being, more than anybody else, how much they need Jesus. And that's what makes them holy. That's what makes them more spiritually mature. Because when, you, when we acknowledge that and we, we come to that place in the deepest places, we're, we have more room in our hearts for God to fill us. More of the, to experience the Holy Spirit, to become more like Jesus. And the cross is not for people who say, I've arrived. Jesus says, I came for people who are sick, not for people who think they're well. I suspect that's why John Wesley talked often about this table as as a means of grace. 
Because sometimes we think this is a table for people who figured it all out. This is a table for people who have arrived, who, who, have, who are morally good enough and ethically good enough. And all these, all these things that we think we have, we have come to the place where we're good enough. None of us are good enough. Because if that's what it takes, there's not a one of us who should be coming to this table. There is something mysterious that happens when we engage in the sacrament. It's hard to explain. That when we engage in the sacrament, if we're open to Christ when we come, that the Holy Spirit can speak into our lives in ways that... He cannot speak when we don't do the sacrament. I can't really explain it. I wish I could. But it is a means of grace. And and Paul writes about not receiving the sacrament unworthily. And often we have interpreted that as you, you can't take this sacrament unless you've arrived, unless you're good enough. Unless you've progressed enough, unless you've done all these right things. But I don't think that's what Paul is saying. Paul's writing to the church. And he's writing to the church at a time when when they came for the sacrament, they had a whole meal. And it was often in the early evening. And what was happening is the people of privilege were coming early and eating most of the food, satisfying their stomachs. And the people who didn't have that kind of privilege who had to work all late into the day, would come and there wasn't much left. And Paul Paul admonishes them because they're coming to the table with a self-centered perspective. And they're mocking this table. It's not about being worthy. It's about coming thinking about Jesus. It's about coming with a heart open to Jesus and yearning for Jesus as opposed to coming and thinking what can... How how self-centered can I be? This is a table for people who yearn for Jesus. Have we figured it all out? Of course not. Have we arrived? None of us have. That's why it's grace offered to us. To come in openness. To come in a spirit of yearning for Jesus. Wherever we are on the journey. To come asking for God's grace. Because we acknowledge how deeply We need it. And what's the response to Christ's broken body and shed blood? What's the response to the cross? What does it call us to? What does this table call us to? In a sense, it calls us to worship. And and I think in this context, worship might best be described as coming in a spirit of brokenness. And we come in a spirit of vulnerability and honesty, acknowledging our need. If if Jesus comes to be the Savior of the world, and and the way he does that is through a broken body and shed blood on the cross, then I suspect the agents of his redemptive work probably will follow the same pathway. Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you take up your cross and you follow me. Paul writes, have this mind in you that was in Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, surrendered himself, humbled himself, even to death. 
If that's the way of Jesus, then I suspect that's the way of Jesus' followers. I think God is calling us to come in a spirit of brokenness for our world. In the same way that Jesus comes and is broken for the world. There's only one cross. There's only one Redeemer. Only one Savior, and that's Jesus. But we are agents of His grace. We're agents of His redemptive work. And we come to that work in the same spirit as Jesus does. And why do we do that? That's the way of God. When you look at at how God interacts with his world, it is continually an act of of risk-taking, of giving of himself, even of limiting himself, and eventually of allowing himself to be broken for every one of us. You see, this all doesn't begin at the cross. You might say it begins in Bethlehem. As John writes, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. But actually, it doesn't even begin in Bethlehem. It goes back at least as far as Genesis 22. You know that story that that always probably bothers you and maybe as much as it does me of God asking Abraham to take his one and only son up to Mount Moriah and to sacrifice him. I think, why would you do that? Mount Moriah, that same place that most scholars believe probably is the the mountain on which Jerusalem is built and probably Calvary. That moment when when God says to Abraham as as he ties Isaac to the altar, as he lifts the knife and God says, stop, don't hurt the boy. And Abraham looks up and he sees a ram caught in the thicket. And God says, there's your lamb. One of my spiritual heroes, Dennis Kinlaw, says that when he thinks about that story and the more he studied it, he says, I I envision this conversation echoing down the centuries. A conversation between the eternal son of the Trinity and the eternal father of the Trinity. The eternal son says to the father, this isn't the last time we're going to be here on Mount Moriah, is it? And the father says, no. We're going to be back here in about 1900 years. And the eternal son says to his father, when we, when we come back here, it's not going to be one of our creatures that's going to be up for sacrifice, is it? Father says, no, son, it's not going to be one of our creatures. It's going to be you. And the eternal son says to the father, when they lay me on that cross, they put the spikes to my hands and they raise the hammer to drive them through. Are you going to stop them? Father says, no, son, 
I'm not going to stop them. Because we never ask our children to do in symbol what we haven't already done in reality. We never ask our children to do in symbol what we haven't already done in reality. As we come to this table, the symbol of the reality of what God has done for us, we come in thanksgiving and gratitude for the cross. And we also come recognizing the call of God on our lives to surrender ourselves for the mission of the kingdom. And what's so fascinating is that when we do that, we experience just a little bit of what we're going to experience one day, the resurrection of Jesus. And we actually find in giving ourselves away in brokenness, the joy of God with us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. And we thank you for the privilege of being agents of your redemption in this world. As we come to this table, pour out your blessing upon the bread and the cup. That as we receive it, we may know the power of the risen, crucified Christ. And that we may know his grace to each one of us and to the whole world. We ask this through him. Amen.